You would uh, take your Bibles and turn to the fourth chapter of Philippians. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9 this morning. While you're doing that, I'll just make mention of a couple of things before we get to this passage. Um, we are getting very close to the end of Philippians, um, which is a good thing. Um, we'll wrap up this book eventually. Um, but the reason I, I want to point that out this morning is because you get to this section of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and, and it almost feels like he's just tying up some random loose ends, you know, like uh, it, it feels almost like a postscript, you know, and tell so-and-so to get along and, oh, yeah, don't be anxious and be gentle, you know, have this gentle spirit and all this kind of stuff. Um, but even though this passage feels that way, feels a little bit random, it, it's actually not not what's here. And a preacher by the name of Tim Keller really helped me understand this because, you see, Paul here in this passage, he's giving you principles with how to deal with with life. This isn't just the leftover stuff for Paul. I mean, this is important stuff for really dealing with the instability of life. And so, with that said, I want us to read this passage um, in Philippians chapter 4. So, beginning in verse 1, let's give our attention to God's Word. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, it is right for us to come together in prayer before we deal with your word, because what we are asking is that in your word you would deal with us that you would, by your Spirit, take up this Word and that you would apply it to us, that you would write it upon our hearts, that as we hear you speak this morning, we pray that you would challenge us. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would confront us. We also pray that you would comfort us in your Word. We pray that as we study your word, you would allow us with the eyes of faith to see the Lord Jesus Christ. To see that he is our only hope. To see that we are safe and secure in him. To see that we long to be obedient because of his great mercy, his great grace towards us. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. I heard, um, and I actually double-checked this with an aerospace engineer, um, the back fins of, a, of an airplane um, are really what gives the airplane stability. Um, you know, the little uh, horizontal fins going across it are really what, um, what keep the plane from pitching up and down, and the vertical fin, you know, stabilizes it so that it's not going left or right. You know, without those... I think we would all agree that those fins are pretty important if you ever get in an airplane, you know. I mean, without those fins to stabilize the thing, I mean, the first and slightest bit of turbulence that you hit, I mean, you're just going to be all over the place. Nothing to stabilize you, and it'll cause some major problems, of course. Um, And the reason I bring that up is because we all face a lot of instability in this life. Um, I mean, it often feels like there are very, very few things you can be sure of, and I think that the older you get, the more real that truth comes in upon you. Um, There there seems to be very, very little that you can actually be sure of and that you can actually control. There's a lot of turbulence out there and in our lives. And facing this kind of instability, you need something that will give you stability. Uh, You know, I know that some of you this morning are probably feeling this more intensely than others. This morning, But the truth is we all face this. We all deal with this. Uh, there are pressures constantly to be faced. There are stresses to be handled in life, changes in work and career, gaining and losing friends, changes in family dynamics, maybe even trouble in the family. These are difficult times in the economy, and you may be feeling the stress of financial instability. There are any number of things that we could add to this list that are troublesome, and cause instability in life. And the question this morning is, what do you, what do you have to stabilize? And, and what do you use to stabilize and deal with life? And I want to say to you this morning that stability comes when you are able to apply big truth to the little places of your life. When you can take cosmic truths and apply them to the mundane and ordinary circumstances of your life. That may not make a whole lot of sense just yet, but hopefully it will become clear in a couple of minutes. But, you see, we're given three examples of how to do this in real life. If you want stability in your relationships, you need to apply cosmic truth to the ordinary stuff of relationships. If you want stability in your circumstances, you need to apply big truth to the circumstances that you face, whether those are good or bad circumstances. If you want freedom from anxiety... You need to apply big truth to the very things that would cause you to worry. So I want us to look at relationships and see how this works first. You know, here's the deal with relationships. Whether that be friends or parents or spouse or coworker, brother, sister, whatever, whoever. We want and are constantly looking for those relationships to be good. And not too long ago, I was uh, listening to an old Matchbox 20 song. And if you don't know who that is, it's fine. Uh, but the name of the song was Back to Good. And there are a couple lines in that song that grabbed my attention. The singer sings th- this line. He says, I'm lonely now, and I don't know how to get it back to good. And then he goes on. Everyone here is wondering what it's like to be with somebody else. Everyone here is to blame, and everyone here gets caught up in the pleasure and the pain. Well, everyone here hides shades of shame. We don't know how to get it back to good. 
there is something that we desperately want out of our relationships. We want to get them back to good. Blame is passed around. It has been passed around ever since the garden. Everyone is trying to hide their shame. That happened in the garden as well. We are trying to get back to good. Look, you and I were made for relationships. We understand this. You see it on the very first few pages of the Bible when God made man, right? Before sin or distortion or twistedness or frustration or anger or bitterness or hurt feelings, wherever in the world, Adam was there and he was lonely in the garden. It was perfect, and yet he was lonely, so God made Eve for that need of loneliness. But in the very next chapter of the Bible, you know, sin enters the picture. And ever since sin has entered the picture, we have been trying to figure out how can we possibly get this back to good. I mean, talk about hiding shame. I mean, immediately, Adam and Eve, they're covering themselves with fig leaves. They're blaming one another. They're blaming the serpent. I mean, it's all there in the first few pages of the Bible. The reality is that relationships are fragile in this life. They're always changing. You have been hurt before, I know. You have felt anger and you have felt bitterness. You have both wronged people and you have been wronged by others. You know what it feels like to be stabbed in the back and to feel as if you'll never be able to trust anyone again. So what do we do? We build walls to hide. In chapter 4, Paul addresses a relationship that's in need of repair. These women, Yodia and Syntyche, have experienced a disagreement. What's the disagreement about? Who knows? It doesn't really matter. What Paul is saying is that he's saying there's a rift in this relationship. And what matters is how Paul tells them to deal with their relationship. There are three phrases in verses 2 and 3 that I want you to see that stand out. He tells these women to agree with each other in the Lord. That's the first phrase. The second phrase is that these women have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. And the last phrase is this, whose names are written in the book of life. You see, in these phrases, Paul is showing you, as he's showing these women, how to apply big truth to the very little places of our relationships. Because here he's saying that understanding your identity in Jesus is what brings stability to your relationships. You see, he doesn't just say to these women, grow up and get along. He doesn't say that. He says, agree in the Lord. You know, Christians do not have to agree on every issue. But you do need to understand that in your relationships, we are together in the Lord. That's important for Paul. Then he reminds them further of who they are by saying that they have taken up the cause of the gospel. They have come to see themselves in light of the gospel. In light of what Jesus has done for them. In light of this cosmic truth. And how they have responded to the call of the gospel. See, then finally he reminds them that their names are written in the book of life. You see, he's saying this is the big picture. You are a child of God with your names written in the book of life. You have to hear this. Paul is saying get along and agree. And you can only do that when you begin to understand the big picture of who you are in Jesus. Your petty arguments and even your hurt and bitterness pale in comparison when you begin to understand that Jesus, the Son of God, entered into your sorrow, bore your guilt, and presents you to his Father as a trophy of his grace. Disappointment and frustration that so often come in relationships, they fade when you understand who you are. A child of the King with your name written forever in the book of life. You see, what we often want to do in our relationships is we often want to, we say, well, this is how we repair our relationships. We want to run to some kind of 
conflict resolution steps. You know, give me a formula for how to listen, how to speak. Give me some kind of steps for achieving forgiveness. And all that's fine and good. But that isn't where you begin. Paul says you begin to get your relationships back to good when you see the big picture first. When you begin to understand who you are. You know, when you have children, everyone wants to tell you, especially when they're babies, you know, um, who your son or daughter looks like. You know, it's the, oh, she's so cute. She looks just like Jennifer, thank goodness. Um, or, you know, he he looks just like his father or, or, or whatever. You know, before I had children, it, it never occurred to me, I think, how that would affect me. Um, when people would say those kind of things, you know, because before before we we had children, I just assumed that, of course, my children would look for me that genetic code and there's recessive and dominant genes. And, you know, that's kind of what happens. Um, of course, they're going to have some of my characteristics, but there has to be something more because genetic code and dominant and recessive genes, they don't really get me fired up. Um, but to even be slightly reminded that these are your children, that they resemble you, that they belong to you. That's something different. You see, when Paul talks to these disagreeing women in a broken relationship, he's saying, if you are ever going to get it back to good, you have to understand that you belong to God, that he looks at you clothed in Jesus and his righteousness, and he says, you are mine. See, that is the only place that you can actually begin to stop placing blame and stop hiding the shame and really deal with the instability. You can only do it when your identity is wrapped up in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That changes the way you deal with people. I mean, it changes the way you deal with hurt and disappointment in your relationships. The only way that you can stop being petty in all your relationships is to remember who you are. And then you will find stability in the midst of all of that change in relationships. It's applying big truth to little places. The second thing I want you to see in these verses is that we're told how to deal with our unstable and changing circumstances in the light of big truth. I think I've mentioned this before, but I've been sailing in the British Virgin Islands a couple of times with some friends of mine. And these two chains of islands, they they form the... They make up the British Virgin Islands. They form this channel uh, in between the islands. And inside the channel, the sailing is great because the wind comes through the channel and it's great wind for your sails and all that kind of stuff. But there's also another benefit of sailing inside the channel, and that is that the islands actually block all the huge swells of the ocean, those huge waves that you have to deal with in the ocean. So outside of the chain of of islands, they call it the big water. And uh, if you get outside of that chain of islands, all of a sudden you are in these huge swells. And, you know, one minute you're looking down 15 feet over the side of the boat to the the bottom of the swell. And then the next minute the wave is 5, 10 feet above your head. And this is where people get really sick on the ocean, you know, when it's the up and down, up and down. And for uh, for most of us, life feels very similar. A lot of up and downs. We are either riding good circumstances or we're riding bad circumstances. One minute you're up high, the next minute you're down low. And things are always changing. How can you respond in such a way that you aren't pushed and pulled by circumstances? How is it possible to stabilize in the midst of all of that change? We're going to actually spend more time on this uh, next week in the verses that follow. So I'm going to be brief. But 
at times you are going to face very, very difficult circumstances in life. At other times, you're going to face great and happy circumstances in life. And what God is telling you in this passage is that you need moderation. In verse 5, my translation says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The English, standard, the English Standard Version actually comes closer by translating that same word, reasonableness. And it's actually a hard word to translate with just one English word because it actually means something like this. Let your radical evenness of temper be evident to all. It's not the smoothest of translations. But, but you hear what he's saying. He's saying don't get tossed around by the waves of circumstance. You need stability. You need moderation. You need an evenness of temper. So that the worst of times in your life don't crush you. So that the best of times don't puff you up and make you arrogant. You know, I'm told, I'm told that there's a quote from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and I'll probably get it wrong, but it goes something like this. When you understand the grace of God, it makes your worst times bearable and your best times believable. How does God's grace do that? How does it make your worst times bearable and your best times believable? You have to apply this big truth to your circumstances. Notice in verse 4, Paul says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He's saying no matter what you are going through, no matter what the circumstances are, you are to rejoice in the Lord. Not rejoice in your circumstances, but rejoice in the Lord. Not crushed by the blows of life, but rejoicing in the Lord. Then you see at the end of verse 5, he says, the Lord is near. You see, you rejoice in the Lord and you're not tossed about by the changing times because you understand that the Lord is near. I mean, we live our lives with an understanding that Jesus, our King and our Savior, He will soon return for His bride. And when He returns for His bride, everything that is wrong in this world will be made right. In that day that He comes, He is near. Here's Here's what I'm trying to say. Here is how you deal with changing circumstances. You are able to say when you understand that, you know, this or that in my life is sad and it's hard, but it's not my main thing. You know, I'm waiting for the main thing. The Lord is near. I'm rejoicing in Him. And so I'm not crushed by this circumstance. I rejoice because He's near. You're also able to say this this great thing that I'm experiencing in life As great as it is in this success and this happiness that I'm experiencing in my life, as wonderful as that is, you're able to say to yourself, calm down. As great as this is, this is not my main thing. The main thing is far better than this. I'm waiting for the Lord. He is near. You know, when my wife and I, when we first started dating, I I called her up one night and and I asked her out on a Friday night. And... um, and we had gone out a few times, you know, coffee shop, dinner, that kind of thing. And uh, and at the time, she was working with the girls of a youth group in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, so I asked her out, and she explained that she couldn't go. And uh, she said, well, I have, I have this girl in the youth group, and she's in this high school play at Jackson Prep, and, uh, and i got to go to the play this Friday night. And... Uh, and then she asked me if I wanted to go to the play instead of whatever it was that I had planned for us. You know, plays and theater and all that stuff. You know, it's great. And if you're into that, then God bless you. Uh, those are good things, the arts. Um, I am not into that stuff. And so the idea, the idea of going to a play was bad enough. 
The idea of going to a high school play was worse. The idea of going to a high school play of a bunch of kids I didn't know was terrible. Um, But here's the thing. In that moment, I didn't hesitate. I just said, that sounds awesome. Let's go to the play. And um, if you know me, you would think that, well, Nathan, that was the first lie in your in your relationship with Jennifer. But but I, I'm telling you that it wasn't, that, that I was being very honest. I, I absolutely wanted to go to that play. You see, the thing that made the difference was that Jennifer was going to be there. That's it. You see, what Paul is saying is that you have to apply these huge truths, this cosmic truth to your circumstances. When you understand the nearness of God, it changes the way you see circumstances. It changes the way you see what is happening around you and how it affects you. I mean, Jennifer's presence at that play totally changed my perspective on the thing. Understanding that you live in the presence of a coming king is what changes the way you see or changes the way you see the ups and downs. Understanding that truth is what brings moderation and lets you rejoice in the Lord, no matter the circumstances, even though the sea's tossing all around. Well, finally, and this is actually closely related to the last point, Paul addresses dealing with anxiety or worry. And, uh, you know, I am not a, a stats guy, but I, I googled uh, anxiety disorders. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health, Anxiety disorders, and there are a huge range of those. Anxiety disorders rank number one among mental health uh, problems among women. And they rank number two among men behind substance abuse. My point is simply to say this. There is a whole lot of anxiety out there. A whole lot of worry out there among us. Where does that come from? I mean, it comes from being concerned about the future, right? You know, things beyond our control. You know, when you're worried about what will happen, when you're worried about why things are happening, how do do you live and find stability when everything is ultimately out of your control? Notice verses 6 and 7. Paul says this. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts in your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, if you want peace, and he's talking about the peace and the calm that is beyond even your understanding, you pray with thanksgiving. And I know what you're thinking at this moment. You're thinking, okay, great. The preacher just said pray. I mean, what else do you expect a preacher to say? Uh, just pray about it. But that's not really what Paul says here. He doesn't just say pray about it. He says, what he says is pray and ask with thanksgiving. Now, why is that a big big deal? It's because Paul is telling you that when you are praying about something that has you stressed out, when you are praying about something that has you anxious and worried, you need to pray thanking God for whatever will happen. Thanking God for the entire range of possibilities, of possible answers that he may give. I know that probably sounds strange to some of you, but here's the big truth that you're to apply to your worry. Apply the truth of God's good and perfect wisdoms, wisdom and dealings with you. Whatever his answer is. God is on his throne and working through everything for your good. I mean, some of you know that passage in Romans where Paul says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, this world is a mess. It doesn't work the way it should. 
There's hard things to face. But God uses even those hard things, those things that go wrong, He uses it all for the good of His people. And that is how you pray with thanksgiving. In the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of your worry, you pray thanking God for whatever is going to happen with your family, for whatever is going to happen in your school, for whatever is going to happen in your relationships, for whatever is going to happen with your, your career. You pray for it all thanking God because you know whatever he does and however he answers, it will be for your good. You and I, we need to learn how to see life through the cross of Jesus You know what happened when Jesus hung on the cross, right? You know this story. I mean, his friends, his disciples, the people he ate, the people he ate with, the people he laughed with, the people he wept with, the people he loved, they all took off on him when he hung on the cross. Why did they do that? Because they looked at the cross and what they saw in that moment, they saw defeat. They saw the Son of God brutalized, beaten beyond recognition, hanging on a cross, and they were afraid. It was only later that they would understand that what they really saw, when they at first looked at it and saw defeat, that what they really saw was the greatest deed of love and mercy history has ever known. You see, you may never know in this life the answers to why certain things happen in your life. But you can pray with thanksgiving in all things. And you can enjoy the peace of God because you understand that he is working all things for the good of his people, even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it looks tragic, even when it looks like defeat. The very cross of Jesus teaches you that. Well, finally, I want to remind you of one little story in the Bible as we finish. It was the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph was his daddy's favorite son, right? I mean, he was a Spoiled little kid. You know, his brothers absolutely hated him. They wanted, to, they wanted to kill him. And so they made plans to kill him. But at the last minute, you know how the story goes. They, they figured, well, if we kill him, we don't get anything out of that. Let's sell him as a slave. So they threw him in a well, sold him as a slave, and he winds up in Egypt. And then he gets to Egypt, and he's thrown in prison for something he doesn't do for years of his life. A slave, and now he's in prison. I mean, things in his life are not going well. You know, but then Joseph ends up interpreting some of Pharaoh's dreams and one thing leads to another. And all all of a sudden, this slave in a foreign land is now the second in command of all of Egypt. I mean, fast forward about seven years, a famine hits the land and all of a sudden everyone is coming to this ex-convict, this ex-slave to buy their food. I mean, even his brothers come and they're so ashamed of what they have done to their brother that they throw themselves down at his feet and they beg for mercy. They begged to be his slaves. And here's what Joseph says to his brothers. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know, here's another thing you got to understand. You go you go and you read the names of Joseph's brothers in Genesis. And then you get to the first chapter of Exodus. And you realize that you're hearing their names again. Only this time, they are the tribes of the nation of Israel. You see, what was difficult to see thrown in the bottom of a well, in prison, being a slave, what was difficult to see at that time was that God was building a nation. The very same nation through which would come God's own son, Jesus. 
See, how can you pray with thanksgiving when everything is going wrong? How can you praise God in the midst of your anxiety? How can you deal with the stress and the pressure of the unknown? You can only do it when you apply this big truth to the mundane and ordinary stuff of life. By understanding this truth, that God is on his throne working everything for good. So Paul tells you and me, he says, pray with thanksgiving and the peace of God will march around your hearts and guard you. See, here's what I think you need to deal with the instability of life. You actually need a new set of glasses. A set of glasses that allows you to see through the little things to the big truths. Glasses that allow you to see through the fractured nature of your relationships and understand your identity in Jesus. Glasses that allow you to see a coming king in the midst of changing circumstances. Glasses that allow you to see a God at work through everything, for your good. You need to see the big truths applied to the little stuff of your life. Let's pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we do recognize that the little things in our life often create much turbulence in our lives. Uh, We feel tossed about by the changes in relationships or circumstances and confused and worried about the future. And we do pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we would be even like the psalmist David who we read earlier this morning, that we would be a people who know how to preach to ourselves, that we know how to Speak to ourselves and tell ourselves not to forget all your benefits. A people that know how to reason with ourselves and apply the very large truths of Scripture to the very small details of our lives. Father, we pray that you would cause us to be a people who who find great stability in our lives, not because of the circumstances, not because of how good our relationships are, and not because we have because everything's under our control. We pray that we would find stability because we know that you are at work. We know that our identity is in you, and we know that you are working all things together for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.